Greetings, I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. Welcome. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now, if we choose to. I commented previously on the Trump letter offensive, which began with the president, Donald Trump, having a letter delivered to Kim Jong-un, whom I refer to as Kim Young-un, the vicious, bloody dictator of the family business communist dictatorship of North Korea. This took place in Jakarta, Indonesia, which I saw today is listed as the numero uno a uh, great sinking city, that it is in dire straits, that uh, in the future it is expected that any number of portions of that city will sink into, no, not the abyss, but <laughs> into the ocean. So I think it's entirely fitting and proper that this wonderful Asian Summit was held there, Asian as in A-S-E-A-N. But that is where the president had this notable letter delivered. And it was actually given to none other than the North Korean Foreign Minister Ri Yong-ho, Well, this letter offensive, it consists of more than one letter to one of the president's best friends forever, Uh, the new new BFF being Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-un, but also another BFF being Vladimir Putin. So this letter here at this summit, this was delivered by Sung Kim, the U.S. ambassador to the Philippines. And he approached Ri Yong-ho, handed him a white envelope bearing a letter from President Trump to... North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. I, I just, I, I don't know, the symbolism of it, instead of it, instead of this taking place at the summit between the president and Putin, or in a follow-up meeting between them, instead of it, instead it is being done this way. I just think it's remarkable, but uh, the president has his reasons I'm not convinced they're good ones, but he has his reasons. So he had this done at the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN. And pardon me, that was actually in Singapore. But he had this this wonderful meeting of the minds of the spirits of the souls with Kim Jong-un that took place at Singapore. So, in his monumental, 
summit with Kim. And he followed up on this letter to Kim Jong-un with a letter to Vladimir Putin. And this was delivered in Moscow by Senator, U.S. Senator Rand Paul. He delivered this letter from President Trump to Russian President Vladimir Putin. And again, it's via intermediaries. You know, I, I find it fascinating. But Rand Paul said the following, quote, I was honored to deliver a letter from President Trump to President Vladimir Putin's administration. The letter emphasized the importance of further engagement in various areas, including countering terrorism, enhancing legislative dialogue, and resuming cultural exchanges. How did Rand Paul deliver that little nugget? None other than via Twitter, which is, of course, the means of communication of choice of President Trump, and his administration, all the president's men and women, and so many others now. We, we in this communications age are now beset by sound bites via Twitter with a tweet-tweet here and a tweet-tweet there. I thought it was interesting that Rand Paul was described as, identified as being part of the party's conservative wing who frequently take anti-war positions. Let that sink in for a moment. That Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul, that he represents part of the party's conservative wing who frequently take anti-war positions. Now, (laughs) the reason I find that so fascinating is because the conservative wing of the party is invariably and has been invariably described and blasted and condemned as being warmongers, hawks on war. And here he is described as representing part of the party's conservative wing who frequently take anti-war positions, dove positions. I just thought that was entirely too interesting. But such is the state of affairs here. In this U.S. of A. Among our allies, our stalwart allies, and our closest of allies is, of course, Great Britain, the nation from which this nation was born via war. (laughs) War for separation. War for independence. The Revolutionary War, so-called. Well, whether this president is a Neville Chamberlain or a Winston Churchill, 
<laughs> or something else is something that is borne out day by day by day. Indeed, he shares many personal foibles with Winston Churchill, but without the greatness <laughs> that Churchill also manifested. But here on C-SPAN, I don't know if it was C-SPAN or C-SPAN 2, I saw the very youthful British Defense Secretary Gavin Williamson speak to the Atlantic Council, the Center for Strategy and Security, regarding the NATO alliance. And when I say very youthful, that's how he looks to me. Yes, he has some gray hair, and I would say prematurely gray, but he looks very young. He sounds very young. He said the following, quote, I am profoundly optimistic about the future, end quote. He referenced Ronald Reagan addressing the Atlantic Council in years gone by, and he quoted Winston Churchill, and this is just a a fragment of the quote here, quote, the world will always be free, end quote. The world will always be free. Yes, Winston said some remarkable things, and As you look back through history, it's awfully hard to see that the world has always been free. Instead, it's much easier to see that the world has always been besieged with warfare, with bloodshed, with violence, with suffering, with inequity, with injustice, has always been. Now, there has always been a desire for freedom by many people. There's always been a desire for peace by many people. But there have always been these others who have been hell-bent on destroying others. The evil who hate the good and seek to destroy them. And they don't need any more reason than that. They just hate the good. And they seek to destroy them. Once upon a time, decades ago, there was a serial murderer by the name of Gary Gilmore. And I've referenced this before. One of those whom he murdered was working at a gas station. It may have been a gas station slash convenience store. but I believe it was just a gas station. This young man was a law school student. And Gary Gilmore wasn't content to merely rob him. He had to murder him. He had to destroy him. And he commented later when asked about why he did it, he said he hated his smiling face. There's a compelling reason, right? How many times do we hear with regard to violent crimes and there's be, there is being an investigation, criminal investigation, homicide investigation, and we're told whether this happens to be 
a murder mystery on TV or whether it happens to be uh, you know, a police drama or whatever, that there has to be motive. What is the motive? You need to find the motive. You know, there have to be motive and means and opportunity in order to commit this crime. Otherwise, you know, what have you got? You have to have that. There's always a motive. Really. You do not find motive, classic motive, when you're dealing with evil ones, with destroyers. Not the classic motivations. When I say classic motivations, I mean the ones that are described as being the key motivators. Greed, lust, jealousy, so forth. No, those are not required. All that's required is hatred. That's all. And that's what you find with Islamist terrorists. That's what you find with fascist terrorists, Islamo-fascist terrorists. But fascist regimes, communist regimes, all manner of socialist regimes, whether they happen to be in the fascist or communist camps or wings of that party. Hatred. Throughout socialism, communism, fascism, regardless what we are told otherwise, there is always an insatiable, unquenchable hatred of God. Hatred of God the Father, God the Son, His Christ, God the Holy Spirit. This was true in the Soviet Union. This was true in Nazi Germany. This was true in Mussolini's fascist regime. This was true in imperialist Japan. This is true in every communist regime, whether it happens to be the Khmer Rouge of Pol Pot in Cambodia or the bloody Red Army in communist China or in North Korea. It matters not where the communist or fascist socialist regime is. This is an absolute hallmark that is always present. While it may be denied, it is always present. But in addition to that, there is this unquenchable hatred of those people of God. People associated with God. Whom in many cases, such as with the Jews, may in fact have very little, if any, worship of God or faith in God. They may instead simply embrace all manner of of doctrines and dogmas and traditions of man, of ungodly men, contrary to the word of God. And we find this to be the case so often also within Christendom, particularly with Roman Catholicism. But hatred, hatred of Christians, hatred of Jews, 
This is fundamental to Islam. This is what Muhammad was about, was absolutely bent on the destruction of Christianity and Jewry. And all of those who are devotees of his, all of those who truly follow the false prophet Muhammad, the servant of Satan, otherwise known as Allah, they all evidence that. Contrary to what the Condi Rices, Condoleezza Rice, and George W. Bush, and Donald Rumsfeld's, and all of the myriad others have told us, to the contrary, that no, that terrorism, that murder, that savagery, that slaughter of innocent people, of Christians and Jews, is instead an aberration and a perversion of the peaceful religion of Islam. (laughs) Nothing could be further from the truth. It is at the core of Islam. Are there Muslims who don't believe in that? Absolutely there are. But they're not good Muslims, okay? In the sense, they are not truly observant Muslims. They don't get it. They don't understand what Islam is. But back to the very youthful British Defense Secretary, Gavin Williamson. Quoting Winston Churchill, the world will always be free. No. No, it hasn't been and it won't be (laughs) for what remains of the life of this world. He said that liberty, justice, and democracy are the cornerstone of a Western world. Well, this is very, very closely akin to the slogan of the French Revolution, that bloody, savage, monstrous, murderous revolution in France. Very close. So as far as it being a cornerstone of the Western world, no, it's not. There was only one cornerstone of the Western world. And that was the Holy Bible, the Word of God and faith in Christ Jesus. That's it. That is the sole cornerstone of the Western world. Not the ways not the false religions, not the worship of military might that we find with the Greco-Roman empires, the Macedonian-Grecian-Roman empires. No. The cornerstone of the Western world of Christendom was faith in God, faith in Christ, worship of God, belief in the Word of God, the Holy Bible. But Gavin Williamson, he referred to Britain as being the glue of NATO, of the North American Treaty Organization. He said that Britain was the glue of NATO. And the only nation 
among all of the NATO members that can bring to bear the amount, the degree of military might that the UK can, that Britain can. He was terribly proud of this. He said, never underestimate my nation. That is Britain. But speaking of this great amount of military might that Britain can bring to bear. Now, keeping in mind, bearing in mind that Britain is a nuclear power, not a superpower, but a power, but on a list of the active duty uniformed troop strength of myriad nations, the UK comes in 21st with 206,000. Now, this is courtesy of globalsecurity.org. 21st with 206,000. Now, figures are not to be trusted. When it comes to data or data, if you prefer, figures simply are not to be trusted, not to be relied upon. They're just not. But that being said, UK 206,000. North Korea, 1,106,000. China, 2,255,000. Russia, 1,038,000. Pakistan, 619,000. Vietnam, 484,000. Egypt, 469,000. Myanmar, 428,000. Iran, 420,000. Syria, 308,000. Thailand, 307,000. Brazil, 303,000. Indonesia, 302,000. Eritrea, 202,000, just 4,000 less than the UK. But the UK, he says, is the glue that holds NATO together, and it can bring greater military might to a situation, to a circumstance, to a military front than any other nation in NATO. UK at 21. But interestingly enough, Germany's at number 18 with 285,000. So Germany, 79,000 more. Troops, active duty troops than UK. France, number 19, at 255,000. So 49,000 more. And so forth. Again, 
numbers are not to be believed. They can provide some sort of idea of things, but to reach conclusions on the basis of just numbers is fraught with folly and peril. These various different nations that are listed, such as communist China, such as North Korea, how many of these places, Vietnam and Pakistan and so forth, how many of them do you imagine have anywhere near as high a percentage of bureaucrats as the United States of America's military has, as the UK's have, the Germany's. I, I don't know what is the composition of the communist military of China or the Russian Federation or these other regimes and such. But I know that the United States of America has a great number, a vast number of bureaucrats. And then also within the active troops, a great many more are involved with technological this and technology that, what have you. What does that matter? As long as the United States of America is an enormously powerful nation, nuclear superpower, the sole world superpower, so-called, what does it matter? Well, the Roman Empire was the sole world superpower at one time. You know, before it was overthrown. The Babylonian Empire, Chaldean Empire, was the sole world superpower, at least in its part of the world, until it was overthrown, until it was supplanted by the Medes and the Persians, who were then overthrown by the Grecians, the Macedonian Grecian Empire, which then morphed into the Roman Empire. and from which this nation, the United States of America, separated itself in the war for independence from Great Britain. So where does our confidence lie? Is it in our troop strength? Is it in our technological prowess, our exceedingly high-tech military arsenals? It shouldn't be. It really shouldn't be. That is folly. But back to Gavin Williamson. He says, quote, the world is getting so much more unpredictable, end quote. He says of Britain, we, quote, we've always been a nation that is willing to deploy and willing to fight, end quote. He went on to say that, quote, Britain's leaving the European Union has no impact 
on security. The greatest guarantor of security is NATO. End quote. Further, he stated, quote, the best form of defense is deterrence, end quote. That is true. (laughs) And he said, quote, unless you can seal the borders, it is very difficult to contain subversive warfare, end quote, or words to that effect. He lauded this special, special, special relationship between the United States of America and Britain, the UK, which is referenced uh, ironically and poignantly in the movie Love Actually. But he said the depth of relationship, the closeness, the cooperation, the friendships between the UK and the USA Literally fighting side by side, it creates such a close bond. You want to leave that better, bigger, and stronger than that you inherited. Now, meanwhile, while he was delivering all of these gems, he was seated next to, across from, Deborah Lee James, who's a board director and member there of the Atlantic Council, a fellow, board director and fellow of the Atlantic Council. So this Deborah Lee James, what is her personal history? She's the former Air Force Secretary under Barack Hussein Obama from 2013 through 2017. We can trust in our military might (laughs) if we care to. But this Gavin Williamson, he talked on and on and on about technological prowess. About the technological prowess of the UK, the United Kingdom, and what a valuable asset and ally the UK was to the USA. In this regard, development of weapons systems and so forth, and provider of weapons systems that it is in cooperative manufacturing agreements with the United States. Well, he was asked at one point, what about... Military engagement. Let's say that some circumstance, some situation blows up in the gulf of this or the gulf of that. Would you be willing to risk their latest and greatest, their biggest and best state-of-the-art aircraft carrier, which is named after Queen Elizabeth, 
Would they be willing to or would they be very, very reticent to do so because of the value, the cost, the investment made to manufacture, to create, to devise, to develop that weapon system. And it's really an irony is <laughs> that is brought forth by this question that these weapons systems that not just the UK but other nations are so proud of, that those nations may actually tend to hold back on using them because if they end up losing them in battle, (laughs) it is such a blow to their military might, to the overall power of this nation or that nation. And he fielded it very diplomatically, that question. But... (laughs) The U.K., he really was saying that in the U.K. you can trust. The strength of NATO is Britain, is the U.K. And that Brexit has no impact on diminishing the power of NATO. That Britain will continue to be as outstanding a force for peace and prosperity and freedom around the world as it has been. But (laughs) if you take all of the collective military might of Britain and France and Germany, You can basically leave all of the other nations in Europe, Scandinavia and so forth, out of the mix. It comes down to those three, really. I I know there are all the many here with the various other nations who would just, you know, have a tizzy fit about that. But really, for all practical purposes, it's Britain, France, Germany. And all of the U.S. presence there. You take all of that collective might. And it is overshadowed. By Russia. And. Russia is not a sole. Entity, the Russian bear. If and or when there are blows between nations, it won't be the world against Russia, (laughs) the free world versus Russia. No. And if our might rests in our technological prowess, which has all been stolen by communist China and North Korea, 
the North Korean communist regime, and the Russian Federation, all of it has been stolen, has been copied, has been duplicated, has been tweaked, has been improved (laughs) in some respects. If our confidence for our future lies in that, so that we are supremely optimistic, like Mr. Williamson, about the future, who quotes Churchill to say that there will always be freedom. Well, we might be in for an unpleasant surprise. I'm Brad Thomas. And before I go further, let me just say that whatever is right about this program, after all, is said and done. Whatever is right, whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is praiseworthy, is thanks to God Almighty and His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Whatever is wrong about it, whatever is lacking, that's on me. That's due to me. Okay. So... Perhaps you saw the latest in this ongoing, I don't know what it is. It's a tragic comedy soapbox opera between the president and anybody and everybody who is uh, reckless enough to (laughs) join his administration. But the president ripped into former Senator Jeff Sessions of Alabama again, his attorney general. And he did so without naming him by his name, right? But the president said the following, quote, if we had a real attorney general, this witch hunt would never have been started, exclamation mark. Looking at the wrong people, end quote. Trump tweeted Tuesday morning. Yes. If we had a real attorney general. Well, Jeff Sessions, I was something less than pleased when I saw that Jeff got on board the bandwagon very early on. He was a very, very, very early adopter of Donald Trump back when Donald Trump was not president but was running for president, back when Donald Trump was not the Republican nominee but was running for president. And Jeff Sessions joined his campaign and helped him greatly and added integrity and outstanding qualities that were sorely lacking. Oh, I know. There has been, talk about a witch hunt. There's been all kinds of horrible slander, vicious, nasty, hateful, premeditated, assaults made against 
the honor and the integrity of Jeff Sessions made by the left. But then as if that's not enough that he has to deal with that, he's got this president, right? This nightmare boss who is just profoundly disrespectful to Jeff and to so many others, as he was to those whom he competed against for the nomination. And it's just a pity, in my view, that that Jeff joined him. Now, Jeff has been doing great, good work as Attorney General. But when he recused himself from being involved with the Justice Department's investigation into this Russian involvement meddling with the 2016 presidential election, he managed to earn himself the undying wrath of his president, the commander-in-chief, the tweeter-in-chief. And Trump stated the following, quote, well, let me precede the quote, that if he had known that Jeff Sessions would recuse himself, Trump would have, quote, put a different attorney general in, end quote. That's right. Shocker there. But poor Jeff made the mistake of signing on for this. And everything that this would entail, it's just, it's just a pity. Uh, but that's the way it is. Meanwhile, previously I had mentioned about uh, the president increasing scrutiny of legal immigrants. And with cause, with good reason. Because <laughs> immigrants have been lying to officials during the naturalization process. Any number of them have been, <laughs> have terrorist ties and so on and so forth. But so the administration is trying to rein that problem in. I mentioned previously about this wife of this naturalized citizen, Marine veteran, being deported but leaving the United States of America before she was deported. This woman, Alejandra Juarez, who lived in the United States of America for 20 years, whose wife of, again, a Marine veteran who became a naturalized citizen. And she was ordered to deport to Mexico. 
under Trump's zero-tolerance immigration policy. That despite being married to a U.S. citizen, having given birth to children and raised them as U.S. citizens. And as she eloquently, poignantly, truly, accurately stated in Spanish, and this is the English translation of it, quote, he, that is Trump, he thinks he's punishing me. And maybe I deserve it for having come the way I did. You're not making me suffer more. You're making a veteran suffer. And you always say you love veterans. End quote. Emphasis, you say you love veterans. So her husband, Timo Juarez, who served two years in combat, in combat in Iraq, He is being deprived of his wife. Shouldn't be possible. I mean, it literally shouldn't be possible. But fatally flawed policies, fatally flawed immigration policies, which instead of being based on a cornerstone bedrock like the Bible, instead they're based on the shifting sands of relativism here in the United States of America. Perhaps you saw that the Army has now suspended discharging immigrant recruits. That's right. The military had begun discharging immigrant recruits who were seeking a path to citizenship. They enlisted so that by serving in the military, they could become naturalized citizens. But the military caught wind of something that was troubling, shall we say, and that was that Islamist terrorist groups were focusing on this loophole and exploiting it. And so the military, under this administration, it hit reboot, and it started discharging these recruits, including Brazilian reservist Lucas Calixto. He's not a reservist with forces of Brazil, but with U.S., but he's a Brazilian. And he had sued, and lo and behold, his discharge was reversed. Well, that has now been expanded such that the army has halted this. But there are all manner of things to come, and that includes myriad lawsuits and what have you to see about what becomes of those who already were eliminated from this program.
See, government attorneys, they referred to this program as an elevated security risk. And, for instance, in one case, 17 foreign-born military recruit, recruits, pardon me, 17 foreign-born military recruits who enlisted through the program have not been able to clear additional security requirements. Some recruits had falsified their background records and were found to be connected to state-sponsored intelligence agencies. Isn't that a hoot? So here, foreign intelligence agencies send operatives into the U.S. to join the military. The possibilities are just remarkable. This particular program commenced following the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks. And since that time, 110,000 members of U.S. military forces have gained citizenship by serving in the U.S. military. But... What's going to become of it remains to be seen. You see, George W. Bush, he ordered expedited naturalization for immigrant soldiers following the 9-11 terrorist attacks, Islamo-fascist terrorist attacks. And it became an official recruiting program seven years later known as MAVNI, or MAVNI, Military Accessions Vital to the National Interest. But, dear old President Barack Hussein Obama added DACA recipients to the list of eligible enlistees. So, where it goes from here, I don't know. Our president-in-chief will tell us, no doubt. But the U.S. of A. has become home to all manner of those who have come into the United States of America other than legally. And it's one thing when it involves vicious, ruthless, murderous, when it involves vicious, ruthless, murderous, Gangs, gang members, cartel members, destroyers. But to deport this woman, Mrs. Juarez, is, in my view, abominable. Meanwhile, down in Mexico, how are things down in Mexico? Well, in the Mexican town of Acotzingo, which is now known as train robbery capital of the world, (laughs) according to none less than Bloomberg, uh, things are, are kind of rocky. In the last year, there have been five 
121 crimes committed against cargo trains. Violent crimes. Where they have deliberately, these people have deliberately derailed trains and looted them. And, of course, endangered the lives of many railway employees and others. But that is an active, ongoing matter there in Mexico. Wonderful stuff. And you'd think, well, can't the Mexican government rein that in? I don't know. It doesn't look like it. We will see what becomes of that with our neighbor to the south of us. I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now, if we choose to. Thank you.